1: Some of you are old enough to remember when you took college courses and it was um, a 101 class, communications 101, psychology 101, biology 101, and then your second year as a sophomore it was two, okay, uh, that that all that nomenclature is gone, but that dates us. Um, I, I've called this suffering 201, and in hindsight, I probably should have called it suffering level 900. Um, this passage is a difficult passage for any of us, and I don't care how mature you may think you are or, uh, or not, it's an interesting passage. It's a hard passage for me personally, but it's also one that I think uh, is a good reminder for all of us. We'll pick up in verse 13, and we'll go just through verse 17 tonight. So first of all, let's look at this keeping a good conscience, suffering 201 or suffering 900, whatever you might call it, keeping a good conscience, verse 13, chapter three of First Peter. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, blessed? And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness, and reverence, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Now, Peter states a principle in verse 13, and we need to talk just for a moment about the idea of a principle. A principle is not an always. A principle is a general term. The Proverbs are Principles. It doesn't mean they're guaranteed to always work. They're principles that if you follow, if you follow by faith, they generally work the way God intended them to work because we're dealing with free agents and sinful people. So we can't always control our environment. So a principle is not a one-to-one, it's always gonna be that way, understand that? So in verse 13, the question is a bit rhetorical but it's setting up his argument. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? He's not saying you're never going to be mistreated. Obviously, the whole tenor of the book is written to people who are being mistreated, who are persecuted, who live in a place that's not their home. They probably in their lifetime will never go home. There is no such thing as home for them. And so we're reading, if you do the right thing, you won't be persecuted. That's the principle. Now, the word zealous here, it's just trivia to me. is zealotes in Greek another one of those loan words where the English language rips off and brings into our economy because it's a good word. Are you a person who's eager to do good uh, even though you might face mistreatment and harm? Now, if you drive the speed limit, if you obey the traffic signs, if you yield appropriately, if you're a courteous driver, if you don't use your device when you're you know, driving and weave around the lanes, if you don't fill in the blank when you're behind the wheel, you generally will not be pulled over right? You, you, police won't harass you generally. If you put one of those, uh, I support the police or a military sticker on your back, you'll never be pulled over. It's just kind of one. But generally speaking, if you obey the law, you're a good citizen, you don't have road rage, let other people you know, get in front of you, whatever, you're going to be left alone. That's the principle. For some of us, we have to reframe part of this question though, because Peter says, if you prove zealous for what is good, you're a zealot, you're zealotes. You want, you're eager to do the right thing. I've asked myself over my Christian life again and again, am I as eager to run to obey as I am to run to sin? And those are you know, counter tensions we all deal with. Are we as eager to run to obey? Whatever you say, whatever you want, I'm ready to do it. Versus the temptation to run to sin. On the other hand, in this context, some, some people like to fight. Some personalities like to pick a fight. If there's a con fight, let's just get into this. Let's fist her upward and condition yellow, orange right away. Well, the idea for Peter is, this principle is, if you're doing the right thing, if you're zealous for doing the right thing, you may well live a suffering, free life, but even if verse 14, you should suffer. Again, a reminder, Peter uses this term suffer in this little letter more than anyone else in the New Testament. He uses it about 12 times depending on your English rendering, uh, more than any author uses it in the rest of the New Testament. Comfortable though it may be, he's saying you suffer for the sake of or even because of righteousness. Now let's remind ourselves this is self-inflicted suffering. This isn't uh, sin that we choose or disobedience or apathy or just poor decision-making. We might not even call it sin. We just made some bad decisions we didn't know with our money, with our health, with our life, with our relationships, and we're suffering consequences of that. Um, That's what I call self-inflicted suffering. Righteousness is another one of these Bible words. I mean, how many of you besides Scripture ever use the word righteousness? I remember one film where a guy kept saying, I want to get righteous again. That's probably the only time I've ever heard the word used. It's a Bible word. And the problem with Bible words is they mean nothing because they're not part of our language. So it takes a little care to cultivate what these words mean. To give you a very simple definition, it's doing the right thing in the right way all the time. Doing the right thing in the right way all the time. It's used in the New Testament of justice, of fairness, of a person who's upright, a righteous man as one who does the right thing in the right way, no matter the cost to himself. It reminds us perhaps of the Beatitudes where Jesus spoke in Matthew 5, 10 record, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. They Did the right thing in the right way at the right time and they're persecuted for it. He continues, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Christ is pretty clear. You very well likely are going to suffer persecution. You'll be blessed If you do this, if you handle this the right way, there's no mention of retaliation, no mention of repartee, no mention of jousting the dragon. He said, if you are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, if they insult you, if they say false things, evil against you, now don't miss this, because of me, there's a very narrow bandwidth. We can't apply this generically to all the self-inflicted suffering or just poor choices we make. Now, when I read Peter's language where he says, even, you are, even if it happens, you're blessed, I scratch my head and I have to say, this is kind of like a theological consolation prize, right? I mean, I, I just got to take it by faith because it still stinks. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to be persecuted. I don't want to be treated unfairly. I don't want unjust things said about me much less if I did it in the name of Christ selfishly, even if I'm just doing a pretty good job with life. I don't want bad things to happen to me. Oh, it's going to be fine in the future. Does that fall flat with you? It does with me. It's like we get the consolation prize. Take it by faith. You'll be fine. Um, Blessed is abrupt in this text. And one of the reasons I read it the way I did, again, if you use the New American Standard words in italics are added for smoothing the reading because they try to be a little more literal than most renderings, my opinion. And when they inject these italic words, they're smoothing the reading a bit. So if you look at verse 14 again, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you see, you are, are in italics. So to do it woodenly, even if you suffer for the sake of righteousness, blessed. And to me, that abrupt and kind of unexpected way the language work has more of a punch to it than saying you're blessed. Even if you do this, blessed. Bingo, you've got it. You're understanding the emphasis to the reader. Another part I think it corrects me at least, and perhaps it'll help you, is our Western way of understanding blessing. Blessing is what we see, what we experience, what we want, we want Material prosperity. We want to be rich, just a little more than we have, right? We we don't want, you know, perfect children, just pretty good children. We don't want perfect grandchildren, just just grandchildren. You know, we're good on the list, but we still evaluate much of our life as this: if then, if we live faithfully, God will bless me. And I'm not for one second suggesting we don't acknowledge the stuff we have and the stuff we like and the stuff. Is God's been kind to you and me? lavishly kind to everyone in this room, even though we've been through all kinds of struggles and trials. But this idea of the Beatitudes, your reward is in heaven will be great, what Peter's saying here, uh, this challenges me to not have a short-sighted theology. Because when my mind goes to, uh, this is the consolation prize, I gotta take it by faith. What's that really saying about me? I've got a very small view of theology. I've got a very short runway for this life. This life is short and we cling to it tenaciously and we enjoy many good things about it. Um, I've shared, I think with you in recent weeks, I have run conversations together, um, but two friends of mine who are both, you know, they could be dying any moment. They might live for months or, you know, not much longer probably, but they're tenaciously clinging to life. I don't judge them, I don't think ill of them. I just don't know if I was in their shoes if I would be having the same attitude. Part of me is ready to go. I'm not like morbid, but part of me is ready to go. And so if I look at this, whatever we suffer in a generic term, and this is short-sighted, and if we suffer well, there's reward and blessing. That gives me a longer theological runway, so don't be, and I'm saying this to me as well as you, don't be theologically short-sighted. No matter what our age, I think we, continue, we just focus on the next, you know, the next five car lengths. Kenyon wrote, suffering Christians who refuse to be deterred by opposition display an element of Christ-likeness that speaks more eloquently for Christianity than all the theology books ever written. Suffering Christians who refuse to be deferred by the opposition, display an element of Christ-likeness that speaks more eloquently for Christianity than all the theology books ever written. Well, Peter goes back to his negative, positive, positive, negative. As we've often talked about, the Bible just doesn't say stop doing something. It also tells us to start doing something. This is an interesting twist. It's negative and then positive in verse 14 and 16. Negatively, he's going to say don't respond in fear. Positively, he's gonna say be aligned with Christ. Let's look at it again in a little bit of detail. Verse, uh, Verse 14, do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. So we have the two negatives, do not fear, do not be troubled, and then he says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Let's look at those a little bit at a time. Uh, it's natural, it's normal, the heart fears. When something bad happens, we run to fear. If you have a child, a friend, and they have some illness, and we get labs, and we're waiting on the labs, and the doctor says, I need you to come in and see me. If, you're, if you got a pulse, it's just just, gone up. Otherwise, they say negative, everything's fine. But if he or she says, you need to come see me, there a little panic, a little anxiety happens. You know, we start getting a little sweaty and worried. Um, don't respond with fear. In the Greek, the word fear and intimidation is the same word. It would read something like, don't fear their fear. And the, the verbal forces don't fear the way they try to put their fear on you which to me opens up a different perspective about people who intimidate others. Typically, when you intimidate somebody else, you're angry or you're afraid you're gonna lose control or you're losing something. So you intimidate, I mean, think about a child. We're not perfect parents. When you're threatening a child, you're intimidating him or her by your force of personality, your size, your maturity, all that you possess for that child to comply or to stop doing something, right? So your fear of that child doing the wrong thing is, you're gonna be, now listen, son, listen, honey, if you then, what have we done? I don't mean this to sound like it's a shame-based culture, but just very simply, what the parent fears becomes a form of intimidation, does that make sense? Because we're threatening them or we're giving them a choice and so we're using our power. When you and I lose, when we fear we're losing power or control, We'll get angry or we'll push fear back. And Peter is saying here, they're gonna project theirs on you. So in the larger context for the believer who's, dispara- who's not living at home, who's being threatened because of his or her belief in Christ, other people that don't believe that are gonna intimidate you. They're gonna put their fear in you because they might be wrong. So they're gonna react a certain way. And so his first injunction is, uh, don't let their fear make you afraid. And then he continues, and don't be troubled. The word literally means to be stirred up. Our hearts are not to be afraid or troubled. What's the natural response when we're in conflict? We're afraid and we get stirred up. Okay, it's like when a friend's depressed. He says, I'm kind of depressed. Well, don't be. Oh, thanks for that encouragement. (laughs) Unhappy, be happy. Discouraged, get courage. You know, we never say that to people. Well, we might in one way or another, but when you read this on the surface, it seems that what he's saying, until you continue his argument. The negative is, don't respond out of fear. Don't feel their intimidation. Rather, positively, here's the antidote. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Now I find it striking that he interjects hearts here. And we've had this conversation before, I remind some of us, some of it might be new. There, there's a camp among Christians for the last decade that believes the heart is good once a person comes to know Christ, that the heart's transformed, the heart's created new. I think that's wrong. Um, you can take me at issue on it, that's fine. A lot of people take me at issue on a lot of things. I find no place in scripture where the heart is renewed in the same way that a person is. In fact, if I find contrary, the heart is wicked and deceitful Who can know its depths? Our motives are mixed and conflicted. Uh, We can play games. We can do things for all the right reasons, but our heart can be corrupted by why we're doing it. So I think the heart is is an interesting part of studying from the scripture and how we respond from this innocuous, my heart told me to stuff or my heart this, my heart, my passions. And it can bleed pretty horizontal pretty quickly. What Peter is saying though is sanctify Christ as Lord of your hearts. He doesn't say sanctify your heart. He didn't say clean up your heart. He doesn't even say have the Holy Spirit, pray to the Holy Spirit to change your heart. He says sanctify, which simply means to set something apart. Christ, he doesn't say set your heart apart. He says set, set apart Christ as Lord of your heart. Don't miss this. So when the trouble happens, what, what occurs? The heart beats fast. We get worried, we get stirred up. And Peter is telling us, no, reset, remind yourself that Christ is your Lord. It's a very pragmatic, simple thing to do. Why is it so hard for us to remember this? That's why we study, because we forget everything we learn. So when the trouble comes, when the fear comes, the intimidation comes, we reset what this passage is telling us. No, stop, set aside, understand Christ is Lord of your heart, not fear. Not intimidation, not the what-ifs of life, not the worst-case scenarios, not the disappointments that life hands us. No, set aside Christ as Lord, as master of your heart. He is Lord, he is God, he is King. We're supposed to worship him, not ourselves. Of Of Cindy's and my dearest friends in her 90s said to me many, many years ago, worship is the antidote to fear. Worship is the antidote to fear. When you're afraid, you stop and worship. It's not normal. It's not our normal nature. Bingo. Because our heart doesn't normally go that direction. Our heart goes to fear. Our heart goes to stirring up. Our heart goes to fight. Our heart goes to pushing back. This passage is saying, no, set apart Christ. So when we back up, if you're going to be persecuted for Christ's sake because of your faith, because of what you believe, what is it? there's a, one of the states now, I don't want to hardly talk about it, but I read it this week and it's really upset me. There's one of these states that's going to force schools to teach LGBTQ as lifestyle agendas. And if you're a teacher in that school system, you must adopt this new curriculum. You know, was it Paul Harvey that used to say the animals are taking over the zoo? You know, and you can't make this stuff up. It's like, oh, come on. Can't we have a little latitude here? You can believe that. I'm not mad at you. I'm not to have to beat you over the head with a Bible. But can I hold to my faith too? Can't we have this conviction without compromise? Isn't that who we are? A pluralistic society? At least from that lands, no, not so much. Since Christ has already endured these things, Peter's reminding us, if and when you suffer for Christ's sake, don't be afraid, don't be intimidated, don't get stirred up, literally, troubled. Rather, set apart Christ as Lord in your life. So, for the believer who's being attacked for his or her faith, when you are suffering for Christ's sake, and I do think there's some application to suffering in general, set aside the fear, set aside the worry, set aside the stirring up, and have Christ as Lord. Of your heart. So I went to see a young woman. Some of you know her in the hospital, had a heart transplant this week. And um she's under 40, my estimation. She's got kids at home, precious family, precious husband, um, my other for two friends who may be dying. Spent a lot of time with these people, praying with them, talking to them, and trying to cheer them up, trying to read scripture to them. And I walk out of there going, wow young mom having a heart transplant with lots of complications. It's not a simple thing. What a vivid picture. They've taken her heart out and put another heart in and your heart gets troubled. It gets stirred up. That's the last thing she needs right now. She needs to rest and relax and, and take her therapy slow and simple and let her body adjust to this foreign object that have been put inside her. What do you need to do to set it? Side Christ as Lord in your heart. So when the worry, when the fear, when the anxiety, when the fight comes back, the get even comes back, I got to make it work comes back, I got to get this deal, I got to close this sale, I got to fix fill in the blank. Can we take a deep breath and say, time out, Christ is Lord. What we're saying is he's bigger than our anxiety. He's bigger than persecution. Literally, he's bigger than a Christian being persecuted for his or her faith which I don't think is a hard transition to say that applies to any struggle we face. Peter then speaks of a ready defense and he uses an interesting word here. He says, um, verse 15, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. This is the word apologia, or apologia, apologia, where we get the English word apologetics. And if you've been around the Christian circles for a length of time, you know Ravi Zacharias is sort of the poster brain for apologetics. And we listen to Ravi, and if you're like me, you need a pad, a pen, and a dictionary open when the man speaks. He uses a vocabulary that's you know super impressive. My friend, Dr. Ron Rhodes, I call him the Ravi for every man. Ravi's the apologist guys I like to listen to because Ravi explains it to me on my level. I can get what what Ron Rhodes is saying. Where Ravi, I just think, he's really smart, I'm really stupid, I'll never understand this stuff. Um, When when I hear an apologist work his or her apologetic skills, it's amazing. And I, I am impressed by those people, I respect those people. At the same time, I don't think knowing all the ologies and isms is the solution, nor do I think it's what Peter is talking about here. I have great respect for their mental ability and people are wired differently. Um, When I was in graduate school, we had a professor named uh, Dr. Norman Geisler, a.k.a. Storm and Norman. And um, Dr. Geisler, uh, in fact, every time I go to Israel, it seems like I run into him over in Israel. He's a godly man in his late 80s now. Uh, and not well, I understand, but um, Dr. Geiser was an extraordinary debater, and he debated a professor that I won't name from a very liberal school, and they held it in this chapel that seated maybe 500-ish people, and uh, it was it was one of those scenes you wish you'd have had a bigger venue, but uh, people were sitting on the floor, and it, was a, it had pews, a little rigid, Shoebox, horizontal chapel. People were all over the place, sitting on the side, hanging overcrowded in the back, standing. It was hot. And uh, they were debating uh, evolution versus creation and young earth versus old earth. And the group was 50 50 of those with their pros of this other professor and of fans, and those were fans of, of Dr. Geisler. And so a couple of my buddies and I had gone, it was an evening, over to this other school and we were watching this debate. And Dr. Geisler filleted him. I mean, there were points in his arguments when even the the whole room, even those who were anti-Dr. Geisler were applauding his answers. He was so stinking, I'm not exaggerating, he was so, it was like mesmerizing. The guy didn't know what he'd walked into. He was uh, in trouble. Well, when it was over, you know, you're a Christian, right, so everybody applauds. And so, um, Dr. Frederick Howe, who taught in the seminary at Well, told us a story later, because they, you know, they didn't come out and mingle with the crowd, they, they both made a beeline out the back of the chapel. Uh, Dr. Geister and his opponent, who was limping as he left. And uh, <laughs> Dr. Howe told us a couple of days later in class, he goes, I, I know you all didn't get to see this who were there, but he said, Dr. Howe, the first thing he did was chase so-and-so out the back door. And he, I said, I was standing with him. He said, this isn't personal. We were debating a topic. I care about you. I'd love to have a breakfast or coffee or lunch with you sometime. Even though he was a brilliant apologetic, he was ready to make an apologia for his faith. And he cared about this person that he had destroyed in front of this audience. It was good entertainment, frankly. But Dr. Gleiser was more concerned about the man than he was winning a debate. Well, the good news, that's an all-for-free story. The good news is you nor I have to be apologetic in that sense. The ready defense is, and it's fun if you look at the text carefully, he says, be ready to make an apologia to everyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that is in within you. That's, that's, a, that's a softball. That's a softball. So when the persecution comes, get the argument in line, when the fear arouses, when you're stirred up and you're you're ready to reset and say, okay, Lord, I need you to be the Lord of my heart because my heart's out of control. My sin nature, my fear nature, it's going bonkers. I need you to help me. And then you're ready to give a defense, meaning, can I tell you why I have that hope? You're attacking me for being a born-again, bible believing fundamental, uh, you know, going-to-church, anti-fill-in-the-blank Christian. Can I tell you about the hope I have? As I've said for many years, can you smile at the future? Can you smile at people that are mad at you over these issues? Not always easy, but to give an account of the hope that's in you. Um, remember, our first audience is afraid. They're dispersed. They're not at home. Notice also he adds with gentleness and reverence. When you're attacked, don't be afraid. Don't get stirred up. It's almost like hit the reset button. Maybe we say it this way, Christ, I really need you to be Lord of my heart right now because I'm not doing a very good job of it. I'm responding out of anxiety, out of worry, out of fear, out of get even, out of fight, flight, whatever you fill in the blank. And I'd rather respond with hope that I have in you. When the attacks come, and I will underline the word when, not if, don't fear, but have faith. Be ready to talk about the hope you have. Again, Kenyon writes, that which convinces the world that a person is in Christ will always, according to Peter, be what Christ does for the person which the critic can see. There's no possible way to deny him his right to see Christ in me if I claim to be in Christ. So when people ask you how you're doing, when another person in a situation is doing horrifically, it's because you have a hope. So when I went to see this young woman in the cardiac unit at, this past week who had the heart transplant, she's in a whale trouble. She's, in, she's on the edge. It may or may not work. She has a hope in Christ, even her, in her drug and anesthesia induced state and her confusion. She's telling me, Michael, I've known Christ since I was a little girl. I am not afraid of dying. I don't want to die, but I'm not afraid. And we, you know, we prayed and we talked about hope and we talked about you know, hope in Christ and this will work out and do the next thing and rest and all the same things I tell myself every day. And you say words, but there was something in that woman that I couldn't describe. I can't tell you why she's that way other than Christ is somehow helping her and being Lord of her heart, new heart. Wow, what a thought of her new heart. Verse 17, I would sum up, suffer well. Verse 17, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for what is doing wrong. It is better. It's a contrast. Don't miss it. It's better if you're going to suffer. Suffer for the right thing, not the wrong thing suffer for doing right. How many of us have parents? have told, I mean, I have vivid memories, I was thinking about this this week, of telling my children at different stages, life is not this hard. (laughs) You remember those conversations with your kids? Life doesn't have to be this hard. You're making this so stinking hard. It does not have to be this hard. If you go to school, you turn in your paper on time, you don't give the teacher grief, you're gonna be fine. Just showing up and doing your homework and turning it again. That's all you got to do, and you'll be fine. You will graduate. You will matriculate. You will get off mom and dad's payroll. (laughs) It's really that, it doesn't have to be this hard. But you can't do it for them. Robert Young has what's called a, it's called Young's Literal Translation. Some of you who might be BSF or precepts might have come across this tome. When I read it, I feel like Yoda-ish language, the way he renders the text. But it's very wooden and very word for word, which is why word for word translations don't work. But this is Young's literal translation of this verse. For it is better doing good, if the will of God will it, to suffer than doing evil. Now, I won't do that in Yoda, but you can see how you could do that in Yoda, right? For it is better doing good, if the will of God will it, to suffer than doing evil. I've shared with you before, I'm sure, and in, in the margin of my Bible on this verse is, uh, don't suffer for self-inflicted stupidity. We, we make it harder than it has to be. Suffering for well-doing is better <laughs> than suffering for the wrong things. That's all Peter's saying. It's pretty simple, isn't it? It's pretty easy to see. D. Edmund Hebert writes, suffering for well-doing is vastly better suffering for evildoing. If a believer, because of his sin or foolishness, endures the latter kind of suffering, there is no merit in it. He must hang his head in shame and seek divine forgiveness and cleansing. And we've all known people that have made very hard choices and sad choices, and maybe some of us in this room have, and you hang your head in shame and you ask for forgiveness and you repent and you're restored, but you think back on it, and I, I don't know about you, maybe it tells you more about my spiritual life than I should share, but I can go back and think about those earlier sins, and I can go into shame really quickly. Even though I know I'm forgiven, even though I know he forgives, and it's, as far as east is the west, he's removed transgression, but I can go back to, oh my word, if I could go back and relive those teen years, what I would not do, as opposed to what I did. We all live with that. So we wanna suffer for the right things, not the wrong things is what Peter is saying. God is teaching us. Well, let me give you two concluding lessons. Number one, all suffering, all suffering occurs under God's sovereign hand. I don't like to write it, I don't like to say it, but I believe it's true. All suffering, all suffering occurs under the sovereign's hand. This does not mean he's the author or the cause of suffering. We can't make God God deterministic or causal. That's putting him in our framework. But let's go back to what we've often said. We're fallen people in a fallen context, sinful people in a broken world, broken people in a broken world. And because of that, bad things are going to happen. We're going to suffer. Yet God is sovereign. His hand is providential. If you read uh, some of the saints from the 40s, they loved the word providence. They always talked about God's providential care. And it's, it's a good word. The reformers used it a lot it because he was provident. They talked about during the Civil War, they used the word providence. They would pray for God's providence. What are they asking? For God's superintending to be over the affairs of men. Um, to, to buffer this just a little bit, and we, and I mean that as a Christian community, we get into this language, this nomenclature, that we see God working. You maybe see that statement, I said that statement, maybe you hear other people say, God's working in such and such. I really see God's working. And I'm just a little bit curmudgeon-y. I think about that like, what do you mean we see God's working? We see what we want to see. Is it a bit pretentious and presumptuous to say I see God's hand? I'm saying I see what the sovereign is up to, like it's a 3D chessboard and I see the next move. I mean, really? The sovereign creator one of the songs Marty chose talked about the sustainer. He's the eternal sustainer creator of the universe. He holds everything in his place. We see God's work, we may see his handiwork, just read Job 40 and 41 tonight. All the things we can't see, just a caution, I think it's a little pompous to say we see God's at work. But there is a theological reality that all suffering, he's aware of it. The idea that God could stop it is just as pretentious as saying I can see God's hand. Because we don't know what he's doing. That's part of the mystery of faith. We try to make it all clean and tidy. Sometimes we just gotta say, I don't know. But do you still have a hope? Yes. Yes. I don't understand what I see. And I've said it before, I don't understand all I know. It doesn't change the fact that I know and believe things. And I know and believe those things because of what the word says, not my experience. My experience fluctuates, it's good and bad. I can see things in a good lens, sinning can see them in a bad lens, the same thing, vice versa, she can see it as good, I can see it as bad. One of us right, one of us better, no, we just have a different perspective on something. So I can't just say God's working. But I can say, under God's sovereign hand, things are unfolding according to his plan. And I may not be able to make rhyme nor reason of it. And that's why it's called faith. How many times? Confident assurance of things hoped for with a conviction of things not yet seen. I hope for it. I hope for it. I can't see it. I can't explain it to you. That's why it's faith. Secondly, The way we suffer influences others. The way we suffer influences other people. We know this perhaps compartmental in the back of our brain. To me, this is the magnifier of our situation. So no matter who we know that's going through difficulty facing cancer, uh, friends that are in the persecuted church around the world, friends that are in jail, I read some reports this past week of some of the people in the persecuted church concerns that have been in jail for years because they presented the gospel in countries that it's illegal to do so. Um, If you ever wanna read a a very otherworldly book, Walter C. He Leadeth Me, it's about a Catholic Jesuit priest who spent, I'm gonna say north of 20 years in prison, five of which he was in solitary confinement. And what this guy endured, it's like like reading some of the Holocaust stuff like Elie Wiesel's Night, what it's pretty hard to read. But as a Catholic priest, his response is, "He leads me. He leads, everything that happened to him is God's will be done. God's. I mean, it's almost too. It's almost too thick at times. Like, really, really, Cizik, this is really what you said and did during all those years." Um, but it, it's a recalibrating way. And when people read Cizik or other authors that have suffered, it affects you when you see another friend of yours go through something hellacious, it affects you. And hopefully it gives you courage. I mean, my my life is just a thimble comparison, but people who deal with chronic pain or back pain or whatever, they come to me, how do you do this? I, I don't know, I make it up every day. You know, but we talk about it because they're experiencing something that I've lived with for a long time. It's natural, right, if you have fill in the blank, cancer. I wanna talk to somebody that had that cancer and what treatments he or she did and how they're doing, right? Person loses their sight, loses their hearing. As an adult, I don't wanna talk to a person who teaches orientation mobility. I wanna talk to an adult who's lost his or her sight, right, make sense? So don't underestimate the way you live faithfully in the midst of persecution and suffering and the doldrums of life he uses us in our suffering. Can I, can I ask the question this way? Do you think he uses us any other time? It's sort of like spiritual growth. Maybe I'm wrong, but the only time my growth is when I'm in pain. The only time I grow is when there's tension. If everything's swimmingly in my life, my marriage, my money, our kids, grandkids, everything in the bank, everything's conky dory, the weather's like today, I don't need God. You touch any of those areas. I get all spiritual. I know I'm the only one in that room that thinks that way. So when, not if, we go through those things, people see and they watch. And again, mine's a thimble. People go, I don't know how you do it. I don't either, frankly. (laughs) But they look at me and they go, hey, he's continuing on with back pain I talked to two people this week. Some of them I just go, oh, yeah, yeah. I can't even get involved with this. It's too complicated. I go see your own doctor. I'm, a, I'm the kind of doctor that can't help anybody. Go see a real doctor. Um, but it's hard. And you want to be kind and patient and help people? Well, I see that you, know, you lost your spouse. I don't know how you do it. I don't either. But you're having influence in that person's life. I don't think we understand how powerful your, let's just call it this, your imperceptible influence. You're just living faithfully in the situation God's given you, and God's watching, and people are watching, and people are learning how you're trusting God in that persecution, in that suffering, in that illness, fill in the blank. Johnny Erickson Tata wrote, God wants us to be a good example to others who are observing us. Pretty simple. How can a woman in a wheelchair with as many complications as she has in her 51st year in a wheelchair, how can she minister to people that have hangnails? Because we're all watching her. And we see a joy that's otherworldly. We see a ministry that boggles your mind of what she does. And she the only thing she can do for herself is make words out of her mouth. Can't even... Can't even clear her throat anymore, she's so weak. Can't even go "Ah," to get the phlegm out of her throat anymore. She has to have assistance. And she never complains. Peter does not deny that Christians are going to suffer or be martyred, but these don't harm the testimony of a believer. In fact, I hate to say it, in a way it accentuates the testimony of a believer. If he or she suffers well, that accentuates the reputation. Finally, a quote from Philip Brooks that someone gave me years ago. It's a devotional called The Candle of the Lord from 1884. The reason we are led into trouble and out again is not merely that we might value happiness more from once having lost it and found it again but that we may know something which we could not learn except by that teaching. That we may bear upon our natures some impress which we could not have been stamped otherwise on natures except just so softened to receive it. Isn't that wonderful? You have to go through it so that it softens us to the point that it leaves an impress, it makes a difference in our suffering.
0: Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.